Christ is risen. I think that gospel text is so funny. The audacity of some of these disciples never gets old to me. Um, Shall we call fire down on them, Lord? Uh, Can you do that? (laughs) Is that that a thing that we do? Um, And Jesus is just so gracious, right? I'd be like, you guys. (laughs) Fire? Really? Fire. Anyway. Um, It's been about two years since my my first sermon at Sanctuary and a story that none of you are aware of except for my wife. The Saturday before that happened, my mailbox fell off its post. And not all the way, it was just kind of hanging there. And so I walked out to my mailbox, I put my hands on top of the mailbox, and I just did one of these, just popped it back on, and threw my neck out so bad, um, I called my friend who, I don't, I don't see him here today, is a chiropractor, and I was like, this is an emergency. <laughs> uh, went and saw him that Saturday. So yesterday, I'm on a boat, and then was in the water and needed to get back onto the boat. And on one side of the boat, there was a ladder, and on the other side of the boat, there was not a ladder. But I'm a fit young man in my late 20s, and so I thought, who needs that stinking ladder? And proceeded to pull myself out of the waters, and I threw my neck out so bad yesterday. So if most of my attention is focused here today, Uh, You know why. Sorry to the people on the wings today for the lack of eye contact. But we are in the early weeks of ordinary time. In some ways, I I kind of hate that this season is called ordinary time because it just seems so ordinary. Um, And ordinary doesn't really do justice to what this season offers us. So here at Sanctuary, we've been discovering what it looks like for us to orient our lives together, both uh, personally, individually, as well as as a community. What does it look like for us to orient our lives around the church calendar? And this tends to divide the whole year into two parts for us. So we have ordinary time and then extraordinary time, if you will. And extraordinary time is full of all these different kinds of time. So time like Advent and Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost. But ordinary time is the long stretch, right? I think the end of ordinary time is something like November 24th or something. Um, So it just started, and we're going to be here a while. But it includes the the slowing down of summer. It includes the uptick of fall. It's the time when life goes its long, dull, predictable way of school and work and laundry. 
ordinary time lulls us into this trance-like rhythm, this same old, same old, day after day, week after week, month after month. And yes, of course, there are the exclamation points, right? There are birthdays, and there are anniversaries, and there are holidays and holy days, feast days. But in the end, our days are punctuated with the normal, with the daily. As someone once said, that's the thing about life is that it's just so daily. (laughs) Annie Dillard is an author and a poet, and she once wrote, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. A schedule defends from chaos and whim. It's a net for catching days. It's a scaffolding on which a worker can stand and labor with both hands at sections of time. A schedule is a mock-up of reason and order, willed, faked, and so brought into being. It's a peace and a haven set into the wreck of time. A lifeboat on which you find yourself decades later still living. The commute, the house cleaning, the lawn mowing, the lunch packing, the school running, the diaper changing, these are the scaffolding of life, our nets for catching days. There's a story about the desert monastics and they would weave baskets every day, every day of their lives they spent weaving these baskets, and they would sell them, and they would give the money to the poor. But when the baskets went unsold, they unbraided them and began again. The purpose, they said, was to occupy the body and free the mind. They would say that mindless work is not a burden when the mind is full and the heart like a laser beam, finds its way to God. How good is that? Mind-numbing regularity. And yet it's in these most ordinary times when the most important things happen to us. Our kids grow up. Our friendships, our relationships, our marriages, they deepen and grow older. Our vision expands, our hearts soften, and our souls ripen. I think to lose something of the wonder of ordinary time is to lose some of what it means to simply be a human being. Sister Joan Chittister said, to be considered ordinary has become an insult of sorts. But it is only ordinary that has the ring of hard-worn truth to it. Anything else is a scam and whipped cream. It's kind of like the awe and wonder of Coca-Cola Classic. Who in the room can remember New Coke? Yeah, I see Father Mark emphatically raising his hand with New Coke. So for those of you who are unaware, in 1985, Coke launched what they called New Coke. And this was done because Pepsi had a sweeter recipe, and some blind taste tests led people to believe that people preferred this sweeter 
recipe of Pepsi. And so sales tanked when Coca-Cola launched New Coke with its New Coke recipe. And it lasted about three months until they relaunched their original recipe using the words Coca-Cola classic. Classic. The ring of hard one truth is classic and ordinary and mundane and not as exciting as New Coke or Crystal Pepsi. <laughs> but it's where we live most of our lives. Last week we heard the story of God passing by the prophet Elijah. Let's go back to that text for just a moment. It says, now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I don't think it's an accident that here at the beginning of ordinary time, we're led to a text, to a story about God coming in the silence, because this is where we spend most of our days, in the silent, sacred, ordinary time of life. But of course, we don't do well with silence. We don't do well with ordinary. It's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. Rowan Williams, who I quote often as much as I can, I'd rather just read to you from Rowan Williams than preach a sermon. He says, I was struck recently while reading Julian of Norwich again by how much at the very heart of her vision there is the sense that all you've got to do in prayer is let God be God. Remembering that Christ says to her, I am the ground of thy beseeching. I am the foundation of your searching. I am your prayer. That is the mystery that's going on when we try to pause, stop, be still, be in silence. Let God occur. So often we try to convey or communicate the character and the work of God to others by stepping up the noise and the activity. And yet, for God to communicate who and what God is, God needs our silence. Rowan Williams also said that people have a painful hunger to be taught to sit still. But the church is too noisy to give the world an invitation to be still, as if God depends on our activity or getting the right answer before God can relax. Silence, the ordinariness. So that being said, I have a little bit of noise to make today. Today's gospel reading includes a few pretty rough lines from Jesus. Foxes have their holes. Birds of the air have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Let the dead bury their own dead. No one who looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Some of these things are hard to hear from Jesus. To hear from the one that we would rather believe only has nice, kind, gentle, 
merciful things to say to us. We often read these lines from Jesus as a sort of admonition to put God first, to consider the challenge of following Jesus, to reflect on things like the cost of discipleship. But I think the text has something else to offer us, something about what we believe about Christian community, about who we are when we gather. You know, one of the things that we're persuaded by oftentimes in commercials and online ads is the power of the before and after picture. And let me say, I looked up a lot of before and after pictures to give as an example today, and it's very disturbing what's out there. Um, the yellowness of some people's teeth. Uh, there's, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but we love these before and after images, right? Like we can't get enough of these things. We see it all the time, whether it's weight loss or teeth whitening or like auto detailing to get scratches off the front of your car, whatever it is, we love to see how effective a thing is. How drastically a thing can change when some pressure is applied or some goo is plastered on. And we are so impacted by these before and after pictures that we actually spend money we spend real currency, U.S. dollars, purchasing the things that we see provide the after picture. Because there's something about that after picture that gives us hope. Something about that picture that makes us think something is possible for ourselves. But rarely do we want to stare down the reality that is the before picture. Are you with me? In fact, we'd rather try and fool ourselves into thinking that we're not as bad as that before picture. And actually, we tell ourselves we're not really that far off from that after picture, even when we know it's not even close. Not many of you know that Sanctuary hosts the Tulsa area big meeting for Alcoholics Anonymous. And so every month I have the privilege of opening up our space to about 250 individuals from around the area who come and they hear one of the speakers from the AA circuit here in our space. It's become one of my favorite meetings of the month. It's such a privilege to get to be in on those meetings. And one of the things that I've realized is that the whole meeting has a liturgy all of its own. That the whole experience is like a church service, like rhythm. But every single person who comes to the microphone, whether they're leading a portion of the meeting, whether they're giving an announcement, whether they're the main speaker of the night, it doesn't matter. If you're going to stand in front of everyone and say something, it all starts the same way. Hi, my name is Paul, and I'm an alcoholic. It all starts every time with staring down the cold, hard truth of who they are and naming it. Heather Kopp is a Christian author and a recovering alcoholic who 
noted in her memoir the particular brand of love and loyalty that seemed to flow so easily in recovery meetings wasn't like anything I had experienced inside or outside of the church. But how could this be? How could a bunch of addicts and alcoholics manage to succeed at creating the kind of intimate fellowship that so many of my Christian groups had tried to achieve and failed? Many months would pass before I understood that people bond more deeply over shared brokenness than they do over shared beliefs. No decent AA meeting ever starts with, hi, my name is Paul, and I totally have my act together. But the truth is, we really think that this is something of how the church works. We think the church is for people living in the after pictures. We convince ourselves that the church is for the healthy, even though Jesus tells us time and again that he came to minister to the sick. We think church is for good people, not resurrected people. So our communities start looking more and more like country clubs than AA meetings. Rachel Held Evans once wrote, I suspect this habit stems from the same impulse that told me I should drop a few pounds before joining the Y. <laughs> so as not to embarrass myself in front of the fit people. The same impulse that kept my mother from hiring a housekeeper because she felt compelled to clean the bathroom before the merry maids arrived so as not to expose to the world the abomination that is a hair-clogged shower drain. The same impulse that Nadia, a priest friend, refers to as the long and rich Christian tradition, which in Latin is called totally faking it. <laughs> Part of what Jesus is saying today to those on the road in today's gospel text is that the call to follow Christ starts now. Wherever and however you are, it starts right now. You don't need to go back and fix things before you come. You don't need to go bury the dead before this journey begins. You don't need to go explain to your parents why you won't be home for dinner. You just come. Wherever and however you are, you come. You find a seat as a sinner among other sinners. And you be here when we all join our voices in saying, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. So we are truly sorry, and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Confessing the truth of who and what we are is like the introduction to an AA meeting. It equalizes us. 
These brave prayers of confession remind us that we all move through the world in the same state, that we are both broken and beloved, and we're all in need of healing and grace. And the thing about this is that it's just so like God to claim a thing as his own without any merit. Think about the very first act of Jesus' ministry. Before the wedding, before the desert, he shows up to a river, to John the Baptist, asking to be baptized. And John the Baptist says, no, 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 I should be getting baptized by you. And Jesus says, no. So he gets baptized, and the heavens are open, the dove descends, and a voice from heaven comes saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. There had been no water turned into wine yet. There had been no eyes opened. There had been no death and resurrection. But this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then, of course, we know that Jesus is driven into the desert. And what does Satan do? He questions his identity. He tells him, if you are the son of God. If you are. See, so much happens when we tell the truth when we know who and whose we are, that we are beloved, but we are broken. So what does this have to do with us today? I think if we ever want to learn how to tell the truth and heal from the wounds, we have to be able to kick the cynicism first. I'm a fourth-generation pastor's kid, I'm a child of divorce, I'm getting louder, and I'm a millennial. I know something about what it means to be cynical. But here's the thing about cynicism, is oftentimes we use cynicism as a way of guarding ourselves, as a way to numb ourselves from the things that hurt, from pain, from heartache. We use cynicism as an insulator that we hope will protect us. And on some way, we're right. Unfortunately, we're right. Cynicism is a great insulator, but it's a terrible filter. It insulates us, but not just from the pain, not just from the heartache, but it insulates us from letting the joy of life come through. It insulates us from pain and from joy, but also from other people and from the depth and richness of relationships. So if we're going to kick cynicism, it means that we have to allow ourselves to feel something, to feel the pain and the joy and the heartache and the beauty and depth of relationships. We have to allow ourselves to feel it. I think I've got time for this story, 
And I didn't ask for permission, but hopefully my daughter is okay with it. This morning, my daughter and I are on our way to church, and she likes to come in early with me, which has become one of my favorite routines of the week. And she knows that on Sunday mornings, I love driving with no music playing, nothing on the radio, not really talking in the car, just, just silent. And this particular Sunday morning, this morning, she brought a book with her, and it had a CD in the back that you put in, and as you listen to the CD, it leads you through the book, and it gives you the little bing when you're supposed to turn the page. And so we did that on the way to church this morning. And it's this story of this hermit crab. I couldn't even tell you the name of the book, but it's a story about a hermit crab that gets too big for its shell. He'd grown out of it. And he needs a new place to land. He needs a new home. But he knows he can't make his home by himself. And so it, it goes through the hermit crab talking to all these little sea creatures and they're all lending their help in finding and building a home for this hermit crab. It even says that he goes and talks to the pebbles and asks if he can stack them <laughs> on top of one another to build a little fence around his shell. And they all agree, and they're all excited to help him. And then as time goes on, he keeps growing, and he outgrows his house. But he feels so terribly about leaving his home because everyone's lend themselves to this moment. All of his little sea creature friends have, have helped him build this space. But what struck me about this little hermit crab story we listened to on a CD on the way to church this morning is that the only thing that made that hermit crab's growth possible was asking for help. Was going to the little starfish and saying, I can't do this by myself. And what if that's true of us? What if as we continue to grow in our relationships with God and with one another, that all of a sudden we get too big for a space and we need help transitioning into new moments in our lives? And the only way we can ever do that faithfully is when we ask for help. When we're honest about the ways that we don't have this thing figured out. What was beautiful in the story is that when the hermit crab grows out of his second shell and he's lamenting how all of his friends helped build this home for him and he doesn't want to leave all of his friends in order to find a new home, a smaller hermit crab comes along who's outgrown his home. But this space would be perfect. And he lets go of the space that he was in but he tells this new hermit crab all about the people and the fish and the pebbles and the starfish and the seahorse that made it all possible and wants that hermit crab to experience the same kind of grace. What if that was true of us? That as people find their way into this building, into this space, and they're saying, man, I've just outgrown where I've been. Can you help me? What if we were equipped to say, absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's been true of us.
because we have found ourselves in spaces where we could not figure this thing out by ourselves. In the end, the only way to really live is allowing ourselves to feel, to drink the cup of life all the way down, to feel it in our bones, even if it means staying invested in one another, especially when it means staying invested in one another, even if it means taking a risk and losing it all. I think ridding ourselves of cynicism means that we come as we are. There's no hiding. There's no acting. There's no fear. Again, coming back to some of the words from Rachel Held Evans, she says, we should bring our materialism, our pride, our petty grievances against our neighbors, our hypocritical disdain for those judgmental people in the church next door. We can bring our fear of death, our desperation to be loved, our troubled marriages, our superiority complexes, persistent doubts, preoccupation with status and image. We come with our addictions to substances, to work, to affirmation, to control, to food. We come with our differences, be they political, theological, racial, socioeconomical. We come in search of sanctuary, a safe place to shed the masks and exhale. We come to air our dirty laundry before God and everybody else because when we do it together, we don't have to be afraid. There's no quick fix. There's no magic cure here to what we're offering. This is why before and after pictures don't work in the church. And listen, we don't need a cure. We don't need a cure. We need a healing. And part of that healing is being given new eyes to see ourselves and one another. To resist the temptation to think, the world is watching, so let's be on our best behavior. Let's quickly hide the messes. I get more cleaning done in the five minutes before somebody comes to my house. <laughs> and we clean what kind of spaces? The spaces we know that people will see. And meanwhile, our bedrooms and our closets and that one space that nobody ever looks in are full of junk. And the same temptation exists in the church that we come and we know we're going to be seen, so we better put our lives together, or at least make it look like our lives are put together. If the world is watching, we might as well tell the truth. And the truth is that the church doesn't offer a miracle cure, doesn't offer a quick fix. The church offers death and resurrection. That's it. And in death and resurrection, my healing is bound up in yours and yours and yours. We don't get healed alone. I don't think we'll ever be healed unless we can tell the truth and if we can kick the cynicism. Bonhoeffer believed that this is the most crucial dynamic to faithful fellowship and community. He said, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. 
the final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner, so everybody must conceal sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Sanctuary, I would rather tell the truth about my brokenness and find healing than try to conceal it and remain, in Bonhoeffer's words, utterly alone. And I think this is something of what it means to live by the Spirit. One of our other texts for the day is Galatians 5. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. I think these ought to be the markers of a faithful community that these are the things that are present when the Spirit is filling a place. These are the fruit of a community that is more committed to healing than curing, to telling the truth rather than covering up, to joining in our brokenness rather than faking it like an after picture. My friend, Father Kenneth Tanner, shared this picture with me. I think you guys have it. And this is what he said about it. He said, I once heard a prominent American physicist talk about watching a dimly lit ballroom of dancers. At old school formals, the men wore black and the women wore white. Watching at a distance, you see the women whirling about the room, but not the men held in the arms of their invisible partners. He was using this analogy for talking about black holes. One of the only ways that you can tell a black hole is there is because you see the star circling it. I trust the fruits of the Spirit work in the same way. That if we are people of love, we're being held in the invisible arms of the Spirit. If we're people of joy, we find ourselves in the arms of the Spirit. 
and for people of peace, patience, kindness. We've found ourselves in the arms of the Spirit. So sanctuary, may we tell the truth today, not out of cynicism and insulation, but out of a deep commitment to being people of death and resurrection. May we see that our healing is bound up in one another's, that we are all beggars leading other beggars to bread. And may we find ourselves dancing with the Spirit as we experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen.